So I take it um, that this, Pastor Chris, is the definitive definition of what Christiany Christiany people look like. That's, that's true. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I've been searching for that all my life. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's great to be here among you. Uh, I am uh, John. I'm the proud husband of Debbie. I've been attending Central for five years now. And uh, as Pastor Chris said, we have uh, been really enjoying the launch of Promontory a couple of years ago. And uh, we, we just love our little church. And it's so good to see you all here stepping out with the gospel in this community. Um, I've uh, spent my life uh, in second best job possible. I think the first is, is being a pastor, but I think the second best definitely is, is being a teacher. So uh, for the past uh, 27 years, I've taught um, mainly high school in the uh, Langley School District. I actually retired seven years ago, but they gave me part of my old job back. So I teach uh, grade 10 to 12 um, uh, in um, computer science and musical theater. But uh, so we're going to dive into uh, an absolutely tremendous passage. Um, have you ever in your life been absolutely certain of something only to have it completely dashed and you have to eat humble pie and been proved completely wrong? I think back to uh, our family life uh, when our kids were young. It came time to buy an aquarium. How many of you have aquariums in your home? This is popular. Uh, oh, should I be doing something here with the with no, this guy? Uh, yeah, all right. Well, carry on, okay. <laughs> and um, so I asked my uh, boys what they wanted to get. We bought a big tank, and they said, we want to get a piranha. Okay, so we went and purchased our piranha, but I didn't know that piranha have a very specific dietary need. You have to feed them, do you know? Live goldfish, and that made me <laughs> that made me absolutely sick. I mean, I'm not a, you know, my my son's a hunter. My two sons are hunters. I'm I'm not really into that. I'm not really a kind of food chain of nature type of guy. But we held our nose and we purchased our goldfish, and wouldn't you know it? Very very soon, these piranha looked very very unhealthy, and they soon died. I was kind of upset. You know, I was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I was absolutely sure that the fish were going the same way that my gardening skills had taken our garden. If you talk to Deb, everything I've tried to plant has died. I've killed it. And, it, you know, Deb has a green thumb. I've got, a, I think, the black bubonic plague of death when it comes to plants. I thought, oh, no, it's carried over into the fish. Well... By and by, we happened to open up my daughter's closet. And in my daughter's closet was a bowl of rapidly growing in numbers, you guessed it, goldfish. <laughs> and my tender-hearted Jamie had been sneaking down at night and rescuing these poor, helpless, defenseless, defenseless orange fish and scooping them out. And by and by, the piranha died. So 
it, I felt pretty good. It wasn't, wasn't uh, my uh, black thumb curse after all. But all of us throughout our life has, has had our, have had our minds radically changed where our perspective on something has, has changed. Perhaps some uh, possession that was really important to us, uh, some relationship that we thought would last forever, maybe a particular career that we uh, pursued was on the highest pedestal of importance. And suddenly, over time, <laughs> through experience or that brutal, raw, severe mercy called reality, it was knocked down from the summit way down into the basement of our hierarchy of values. Ever had that happen? You heard the uh, joke of the prospector trying to enter heaven, walks up to, to the gates with a suitcase. The angel said, you can't bring that in here. And the prospector said, I have to, I have to. I'm sorry, you can't, you've, you've got to leave it out. And Prospector insisted and insisted, and finally the angel said, well, what's in there? And he opened it up, and it was his lifetime of gold that he had acquired. Prospecting. And the angel said, why would you want to bring that in here? It's just pavement. <laughs> and uh, and uh, in, that, in that joke, you see how our, our priorities can be changed. Well, psychologists call our change in attitude, this change in the way that we reorder the world, here it is, cognitive frame change. If you look at life like a picture, in a typical picture, there's something in the foreground that is of importance. Picture of your new granddaughter. Oh, how many of you have granddaughters? We've got, we've, we've got uh, uh, three of them and uh, six grandchildren altogether. But there's something in the foreground, and then there's background things, usually that are incidental, less, prominent, less prominence. So all of us look at life through a cognitive frame. Well, what's your cognitive frame? What's my cognitive frame? Your cognitive frame is the, what your mind goes to when it's in neutral, when you're not thinking of anything, when you're relaxing. Where does your mind go, and what generates the greatest passion in your life? Now, the way that we frame our life has drastic consequences. I'm a newly uh, qualified senior citizen. It makes a great deal of difference whether I frame my life as a senior as an old geezer who's ready to kick the bucket or whether I'm in my happy golden years. <laughs> the way that I frame my life now has big consequences. Well, our passage today has a lot to say about how we frame our view of God and a lot to say about what we bring to the foreground and what's really important. And basic, our basic argument's gonna be is that if we align our frame of our life with God's values as expressed by Paul, we will have joy. Let's read it together. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 19. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has been clear throughout the whole palace guard that everyone else, and to everyone else, that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, 
most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So I'd like like you to take away three things tonight. From this passage, I'd like us to follow Paul's argument and, and allow his way of looking at life to become ours. First thing I want you to see is that is that Paul's had a very controversial path to, where is he now? In prison. The second thing I want us to see is that Paul's chains advance the gospel. And the third thing is that Paul's chains actually spawn not grief, but joy. So let's start off. He starts off in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, well, what's happened to him? What's he talking about? He is in jail. He's in jail where? Pastor Chris tells me that uh, this uh, congregation loves to dialogue back and forth, so feel free. Make it interactive. (laughs) Where is he in jail? Rome, that's right. And, uh, and how he got there, what happened to him getting into jail in Rome, <laughs> actually covered many years, and as a matter of fact, it covered the last 10 chapters of the book of Acts. Believe that. In Acts 19, we are told that the Holy Spirit started to impress on Paul's heart something. It says in Acts 19, verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit, this is the Holy Spirit prompting him, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's uh, in uh, uh, Asia, Greece, and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And the next chap- 10 chapters in the book of Acts are that progress, and it was a long process. On the way to uh, Jerusalem, he stops in Caesarea. And in Caesarea, a prophet called Agabus comes and prophesies that when he reached Jerusalem, he was going to be bound and he was going to be delivered into captivity. Well, the people in Caesarea, they were very upset to hear that. And they begged Paul. They said, don't go to Jerusalem. I mean, they really pressed him. But he did. Once he was in Jerusalem, you remember the story, his presence sparked a riot with the Jews. So for his own protection, he was arrested. And as a result, he got to witness about Christ with his testimony to two governors, Felix and Festus, to a king, 
King Agrippa. And finally, he appealed to Caesar and headed off to Rome. On the way, he was shipwrecked. He, he was bitten by a snake. But, uh, but because no harm to, came to him, uh, people really respected what he had to say, and he had a great impact. And finally, he ended up in Rome. And he was in Rome, and we end up in, in Acts 28 with him being in Rome. He was under house arrest for at least two years. So when he introduces his path to prison, that's what's happened to him. Now, why did I say it was controversial? Well, it certainly wasn't controversial to God, wasn't controversial to the Holy Spirit. It was controversial because many of the brethren didn't want him to go and apparently thought it was a really bad idea. More about that later. All right, so once he's in prison, Paul wants us to know in verse 12, the second main point, Paul's chains advance the gospel. What gets you really excited in life? What, what is the thing that you try to get to after you fulfill all of life's responsibilities, get everything out of the way? What do you try to do? For Paul, it was the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. But there's a problem. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the church at Philippi. Yes. Was Paul ever in Philippi? Sure he was. In Acts chapter 16, what happened to him in Philippi? He got thrown into jail. It was like a second residence. And you remember what happened. There was this miraculous deliverance from jail, wasn't there? Wow. An earthquake. And you remember the whole story of how the Philippian jailer and his family came to the Lord. It was incredible. But now the Philippians hear that Paul is in jail in Rome. When's the miracle going to happen? It, Paul's still there. And he's languishing in prison. Paul wants to assure them that God has not forgotten him, that he's not wasting his time in jail. God wants to assure them that there is some very important things happening as a result of his time in, in prison. And no matter what it appears, I mean, here's, here's Paul, such a gifted missionary. What a waste sitting in jail. Think of all the churches he could be starting. Oh, my goodness. God's, uh, uh, the gospel is getting shut down. But the fact is that shutting Paul up in jail, in fact, unleashed the gospel. Amazing. Amazing. You can't lock up the word of God. So he says here, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And you're going to have to bear with me a little bit because... Um, I'm learning Greek, so I'm really excited about it. So put up with me. This word advanced is very special. It's an incredibly interesting word. It's not talking about advance in the sense of, you know, taking a stroll through a park, advancing to uh, the ice cream stand. It's not advance in the sense of, say, a whole uh, pile of soldiers in a parade marching down the street. This word had a very specific, it was almost like a military meaning. It was more like advancing under a threat. 
It's like the Canadians advancing to Vimy Ridge in the First World War through the uh, horrible strafing uh, machine gun fire and incoming shells. It was, it was advancing, even though Paul is locked up. Now, in a weird sort of way, I hope you take this right, you kind of feel sorry for people that hate the church of Jesus Christ. It must be really frustrating for them. I mean, they try to turn up the heat on those annoying Christians. They try to shackle the gospel, throw their leader in jail, and it just advances forward with effectiveness. It's so counterintuitive. And yet it has happened for the last 2,000 years. I'll give you an example today. And can any of you give me an example today where persecution, and, and by the way, um, people, uh, people who uh, study the persecution of the church uh, estimate that one in nine Christians globally are under some severe threat. Does, uh, does any country come to mind where repression, tyranny, uh, attempt to enforce ideological control is resulting in the proliferation of the gospel? North Korea, yes. Oh, there's some amazing things happening in North Korea. We, we have some really special friends uh, that, are, that are Chinese, wonderful Christian friends that are Chinese. And, and one of our friends tells us, an enormously intelligent lady who's written several books and just an just a, uh, incredible, incredibly perceptive, brilliant woman. She says that the repression in China is horrific, it's increasing, but the church is flourishing and exploding. Uh, un unbelievable. So Paul starts our passage by changing the way that the Philippians frame, remember that word again, frame his jail. It's not failure, but it's success. So the question then arises, how has his imprisonment advanced the gospel? Well, he lists two ways. Let's look at verse 13. It says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul is in chains for Christ. I want you to remember, as we go through this chapter, he says that, variations on that several times. I am in chains for Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> he is, means that he is chained 24 hours a day in rotating shifts to members of the palace guard. Well, who's the palace guard? Well, they were the infamous Praetorian guard. They consisted of about 9,000 of the most powerful important soldiers in the empire. They were Caesar's bodyguard. They were Caesar's enforcers. If they didn't like Caesar, who was Caesar, they would occasionally enforce their will on Caesar. They were the elite crack troops. They were the uh, equivalent of the special forces, the rangers, the navy seals, the SAS. And they were in charge of guarding Paul, and wow, I am sure those soldiers did not know what they were in for. Think of it, a tough, hardened killer, somebody with a 
sneer that just has testosterone written all over it. This bulging, bulging Praetorian guard with body mass, huge body mass, like a WWF alpha male wrestler, chained to the most persuasive evangelists in the history of the world. Now that's quite a combination. <laughs> One early church tradition, and it's, it's not in the Bible, so we have to take it with a grain of salt, but it's interesting, describes the physical appearance of the Apostle Paul as, as very unimpressive. There's hints of that in the New Testament, but it goes further. It says that he was very short, he was bow-legged, uh, bald, with a large nose and uh, eyebrows that kind of joined. And yet, that same source says that at times, Paul had the face of a man, and at other times, he had the face of an angel. So what happens when you're chained to a soldier for a six-hour shift? You talk. And when that face of an angel spoke the words that were set on fire by the power of the very Spirit of God, even a hard-bitten, crusty, heart, cynical, killer soldier would melt. And there was a steady stream of these Praetorian guards coming to Christ. And these soldiers are taking the gospel right into the heart of the power of the largest empire on earth, right into Caesar's, salad, uh, Caesar's palace. <laughs> By the way, if you ever go to Rome, you can still see the palaces. They're imposing. Uh, hope, hope, hope. If, if your kids, if you want to take your kids something incredible, place incredible, visit Rome. Oh, amazing. You can, you can actually walk through the palaces or the ruins of the palaces. So, <clears throat> don't worry about me, Paul is saying to the Philippians. Change the way that you're framing my captivity. My chains are actually advancing the gospel. And how would the rich and the powerful and the mighty hear the gospel any other way? <laughs> would, would governors and the Praetorian guards come into a synagogue where Paul was teaching? No, I don't think so. Would they join him in the marketplace where he was sewing tents and, uh, and talking to people? I doubt it. And yet during this long several-year journey of imprisonment, Paul had the opportunity to present the gospel, his full testimony, to two governors, Felix and Festus, a king, Herod Agrippa, and now, as I said, in the heart of Rome, within reach of Caesar's palace. It's amazing. And furthermore, as we move on, Paul tells us that the gospel is also advancing because of his chains in another way not in converting members of the Praetorian Guard, but in giving boldness to his brothers and sisters. He says, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's suffering is inspiring others 
who are experiencing persecution to lose their fear. His courage is contagious. One of the most iconic photos, I think, that's ever been taken has been just outside of Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square. Uh, maybe some of you are old enough to remember that, 1989. Some students are wanting some reforms, and so they take over Tiananmen Square. A whole row of tanks start to come towards them. Do you remember what happened? A single student stepped out, ever seen that photo? Stepped out right in front of that column of tanks. The tank tried to get around him. He moved right in front of it. And he blocked the tanks, they stopped, and they left. That's, uh, and, and that spawned great, great uh, bravery amongst, amongst those kids. Well, so Paul's telling us that his, because of his chains, people are coming to the Lord. Paul's telling us because of his chains, brothers and sisters are getting bold. But there's some other reasons how, other reasons, um, or other explanations for the way that the gospel advanced because of his chains. With, a 20, with the benefits of 2020 historical hindsight, we can see all sorts of other ways that Paul's chains promoted and advanced the gospel. How many books are there in the New Testament? 27, yeah, <laughs> count them up, yeah. <laughs> How many did Paul write? He wrote 13 of them. Well, what happens when you're in prison and you've got a lot of time on your hands? You talk to people and you write. And Paul wrote a full seven of his 13 letters that are part of the New Testament, the inspired word of God, in prison. And think of it. This is the first bridgehead that the news, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ has had right to the center of Roman power. And it's the small seed that was planted that over the years gradually ended up changing the empire from a, a, a brutal empire that persecuted Christians to one that embraced Christianity as its official religion. Well, what about us? Well, we're not physically in jail. Do some of you feel like you're in a jail of another sort? Some of you feel trapped? Maybe a family difficulty? With your kids, uh, we've been there. Maybe the chains of financial stress. Maybe a career that's not progressing the way that you had hoped and could leave you, quote, out on the street with a big mortgage. Do you know anybody that struggles with chronic anxiety uh, and depression and uh, an addiction. Have you had a, a family member who has struggled with health or maybe yourself? You know, is your body like your prison? Uh, do you look at other people and go, 
they just, all these other people take their health for granted. Decades they go without a problem, but me, one challenge after another, one medication after another. I have to take a medication to counteract the effects of other medications. It's horrible. Well, if your life's going well now, I don't need to tell you that suffering of some sort is inevitable. The stats tell us that uh, a full half of us will die either from cancer or from uh, heart disease. Question I have is this, how will you handle that prison if you frame your life in such a way as to make your health or anything else in your life more important than what is top and most important in God's scale of values? How will you handle it? I'll tell you, you can't because your jail will crush you. But Paul's jail unleashed the power of God. How will you handle it when you're in your prison and people start psychoanalyzing you? You know, some, when, when there's failure in your life, guaranteed people are going to, they're going to be talking about it. They won't likely talk to you, but they'll be talking about it. And uh, some of them are well-meaning. They're trying to help. Others are, just don't know the full situation. They're gossips. And this is exactly what was happening to Paul in jail. Verse 15, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now, who are these people that are sniping at Paul? Well, for reasons that we don't have time to go into, they're not heretics or, or uh, non-believers. They're not Judaizers. These actually, the people that are sniping and criticizing and, and verbally persecuting Paul are actually fellow Christians, even those who were preaching the gospel. Isn't that incredible? And look at the motives of the fellow believers who are judging Paul. They're preaching not only out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, they were likely really annoyed that Paul had such incredible gifts. Paul, Paul's preaching attracts bigger crowds than theirs. They're probably humiliated that he's having such an incredible impact and he's the person everyone's talking about. And what happens when you're successful? It, in, it invites criticism. But they're not just... They're not just um, preaching out of envy, it says here that they're act actively trying to stir up trouble for Paul. Can you believe that? They're actually trying to create trouble for him. They're, they were likely saying something like, well, we, we, we warned Paul that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Would he listen to reason? No. Now he's in a pretty pickle. He's getting what he deserves. So if you, like Paul, are suffering in your jail, there'll be no shortage 
of critics who will be analyzing where you went wrong. So how will you handle your jail experience? Let's learn from Paul. Now I want you to notice something that I never noticed before uh, last week, until um, last week when I was studying for this, and I, I say it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's so profound. Notice the way that he references his chains in this passage. This changed my life. Changed my life. Verse 4, we'll go back to verse 4. He says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice that wording and just, just bear with me because the, the trumpets are about to sound here. And it uh, certainly won't be me. It'll be the word of God being unleashed. Notice the wording. And because of my chains, brothers and sisters have become bold. That phrase, because of my chains... The boldness of Paul's brothers and sisters was not just kind of some happy accidental byproduct of Paul being in jail. No, the wording here that is underscored in the Greek shows that there is some active causation here. Because of my chains, somehow the chains, we'll explain more about this later, are part of the actual cause of the fruit, in this case, the boldness in the Christian, Christians. And the plot thickens. Let's go back to verse 13. Here's another reference to chains. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Here he says, note these words, I am in chains for Christ. But that doesn't give you the power of the original Greek. One Greek scholar I research says that this phrase literally means that my chains have become manifested in Christ. Okay, so Paul doesn't say, I'm in chains for the sake of Christ. No, that's not the thrust of the Greek at all. He is saying that my chains have become manifested in Christ. In other words, they're showing to be in Christ. In other words, he deeply embeds, he firmly plants his sufferings, his temporal sufferings in jail, into and completely identifying with the actual suffering of Christ. And what is the result? When these rough iron shackles that he's forced to wear 24 hours a day over the years rub through his skin, rubbing him raw, pain, causing painful infections and scabs, when he's forced to be chained to a soldier all day and all night with absolutely no privacy, even when he goes to the bathroom, the sum total of all of that suffering is given over to and completely embedded in and identified with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And then what happens? There is a release of power. 
And inside Paul's fragile clay pot of a failing body, gold starts to be generated. Fruit springs to life. The toughest of the tough soldiers come to Christ. Boldness replaces fear. Scripture is written that changes our lives 2,000 years later, communicating the mind of God. And what I, all I can say to you, you know, I, uh, I'm, I was talking to uh, dear, uh, dear Marilyn. A um, uh, few, few years back, I was in a Bible study, a men's Bible study with her husband. And we had some good studies. And three years ago, Dave, as, as, as you know, he, he died suddenly. That is incredible. And so tragic. But if you look at your sufferings that will take your chains, if you will look at them and, and first deal with the sin, deal with the sin, but if you will take that pain and by faith embed your suffering, identify it with the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you on the authority of the word of God that there will be a release of resurrection power that will spawn gold in our faltering bodies. Uh, absolutely amazing. So, I remember I was at university. It was first year university. And um, as I think back on it, I think this is something that's, that happened. Um, I had a prof that was uh, incredibly hostile to Christianity. Um, really hostile. Um, and uh, and uh, lecture after lecture, I, I was getting more and more disturbed. So here's this 19-year-old kid, and, uh, and, I, and I'm listening to this, and this is a brilliant man, and I'm just this Joe Average 19-year-old with, you know, hardly any education. And finally, I couldn't take it any longer, and I did something I'd never done before, and I said, I'm a believer in God and Jesus Christ. Would you like to have a debate about it? And I couldn't believe I said it. I was like, I was like, what did I just do? And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, yes. So, 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 so this, is, this is a big class, okay? So the day of the debate came. I tried to find some books in the library and um, uh, why do I believe what I believe? Um, um, and the day of the debate came. And... I'll never forget what happened. I got, I got absolutely creamed. I didn't know what I was talking about. And this man with a dictionary of words and vocabulary and 12 years of education, he just hammered me with facts and arguments. Boom, 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 what about this? Boom, 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 what about this? And as he did that, he got angrier and angrier. I'll never forget... Um, the, he, actually, I don't know, a vein or an artery started, a couple of them started to appear on his forehead. I'm not exaggerating. And he was, he, he turned red. And I didn't, I didn't say anything. And when that was over, and it was over quickly, 
I felt like an absolute fool. God, I thought I was standing up for you. And where did it get me? I actually cried. And um, so I, I left the lecture hall, and I was the most dejected person in, in I'm sure, the whole university. And, uh, and I heard behind me, somebody yelled and said, hey. And I turned around, and it was, uh, it was a fellow student. And this, uh, this student was uh, uh, a really good student, very intelligent, very uh, persuasive and influential in class discussions. And she said to me, I just want to know, I just want you to know that I thought you, that you handled yourself way better than that guy. And I'm just wondering why he would get so angry to actually ball you out for being a Christian. What's wrong with him? And she just like, she was, she was really incensed at, at the emotional tone. She didn't, and, and I just immediately, my spirits flew. And so that ill-advised little step of faith provoked a reaction that I never could have predicted and certainly was not of anything but God. So if we identify, take our prison, and like Paul, identify with the sufferings and, and identify it with the sufferings of Jesus Christ, how does that process work? Okay, I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians 4-7 because it describes it beautifully. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the jars of clay? It's our bodies. We have a treasure in our jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. We're in jail, like Paul, but not crushed. We're perplexed, like I was after that debate, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, like one in nine Christians in the world, but not forsaken. Struck down. Disease, sickness, death, disappointment, you name it, but not destroyed. And here it is. Look what this says in verse 10. Just leapt out at me. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Carrying in the body, in our body, carrying in the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That's what happened to Paul. He's in chains. That's metaphor for being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. There it is. Why are you in jail? Why are you in prison? And maybe some of you are trapped in a way that you feel like there's no escape. You are there so that somehow the life of Jesus can be manifested in your mortal flesh. Ask God to reveal how that's going to happen. But, and then look at verse 12. Verse 12. 
this is how, notice how the life goes, works, the flow of the life. So death is at work in us, okay, so Paul is, is, is uh, death is at work in Paul as he's in those chains, but life in you, life is at work in you. So when this life springs into action, this miraculous power of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ flows out of the sufferings that we give to him, that life doesn't just give us treasures in our ailing bodies of clay. What does it say? It transfers life to others. You've heard the term body life. This is how it's happened. And this is exactly what's happening with the Apostle Paul. That life is springing out from his chains, from his identification with the death of Christ. It's springing out in, in being used by God to bring new people to the Lord. It's giving boldness. It's giving the words of God to the church. So, what is the net result of all of this? Third point I want you to make is that Paul's chains spawn joy. What's the net result of this death at work in us, but life at work in you? If you will frame your life through the picture frame of Paul and these verses, you will, it's promised, you will experience Joy. We're not talking about the biblical definition of joy. It's not giggly, silly laughs. It's deep joy. It's deep delight. It's blessed happiness, like the happiness of the Beatitudes. And you will get that joy that comes from your suffering bearing positive fruit in the lives of others because there's nothing that gives joy more than knowing that we have a positive impact a powerful impact on others. Have you ever talked to somebody about the Lord and somehow the words have just come that you knew weren't yours and you've seen that person convicted? What happens? Oh, you get joy. You get joy. And this is what's happening, Apostle Paul, because as he is in suffering, his fruit is causing the spread of the gospel. And you know what? Suddenly it doesn't matter if people are judging you in prison. It doesn't matter if they don't know all the facts. It doesn't matter because this joy is unstoppable. Let's uh, just really quickly, I want you to take a look at uh, Colossians 1. Paul describes it, that joy here. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh which is what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay? See, he's suffering. And what does it cause? It causes joy. He rejoices. And this, this is a strange phrase. I'll need Chris, theologian, Chris here to interpret this for me. Look at this. It says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. That sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Like, fill up in my flesh what is still lacking. I thought Christ's suffering was complete. Well, Christ's suffering is complete when it comes to justifying us before God. But what Paul means here is that when he's filling up in his flesh what's still lacking, he is simply 
taking the message of Christ's suffering to people who lack it, who haven't heard. That's what he's talking about. For the sake of his body, which is the church. And he says that, that the end goal of that later in the passage is to present everybody mature in Christ. But let's go back to verse 18. Remember what Paul said in verse 18. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul's way of framing the world was simply to see and to see if the gospel was advancing. And if it was, he rejoiced. And he repeats it in the latter part of verse 18. In the continuous tense, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And it's a joy that comes from handing over our sufferings to Christ. Christ taking that brokenness and unleashing his resurrection power through it as we submit to him. It's the joy that comes, that, that is described in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Are you in jail? Are you in prison? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your prison, your affliction, your shackles, your sense of trappedness, allied and put on to the sufferings of Christ that's saying here is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. The Greek word here, sorry, on a Greek, sorry, bring it up all the time. It's doxa, okay? And this word doxa actually means weightiness. It's like the weightiness of gold or, or a heavy precious metal. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, what's the takeaway here? I want to leave you with three things. Number one, reframe your suffering. Understand it. After you deal with sin, understand it as carrying in your body the death of Jesus. I, I have a, a father, a wonderful father, who uh, about a month ago was, was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. And this is exactly what he's trying to do in his life. And it's amazing to watch. Number one, reframe your sufferings your understanding of your suffering. Understand it as carrying in your body the death of Jesus. Number two, pray for the life of Jesus to be released through you into the lives of others. Because death is not enough. The death is the prequel to the resurrection. And that power is ultimately 
for the benefit of others. Number three, ask how your predicament can be used to advance the gospel. Ask God to show you. Well, I can tell you a, I can tell you a story that shook me to the core. A friend of mine, Rob. I hadn't seen him for a while. Okay, so Rob, Rob was, uh, I mean, talk about looking like the epitome of health. I mean, he was, uh, in his earlier years, he was in movies. Uh, uh, he was, I mean, he was, uh, had a lovely family, lovely wife. And I hadn't seen him for a while. And he was walking down the hall of our school in crutches. And this young man had his complete leg amputated and half of his pelvis. Rob, what happened? Rob had been uh, climbing a ladder and he fell, broke his leg, which was bad, but in the process of putting it back together, they discovered that he had horrible, horrible bone cancer. And immediately, his life after that single fall was transformed. They had to amputate. And it saved his life. And, and he, he had to have special um, uh, protection and uh, support built up. It was like, he was a mess. So we, we got talking. And he looked at me with a look of joy. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. He looked at me with complete peace in his eyes, and, and these are the words he said. I'll never forget them. He said, John, don't feel sorry for me. Losing my leg was the best thing that ever happened to me. And he went on to, dis to tell me the doors that had opened up he went from uh, acting in, in, um, in films to uh, getting into missions work, then pastoral work. And he, my jaw dropped when I, dis when I heard the doors that had been opened up for him to spread the gospel through his, quote, prison experience. And, and I, I couldn't believe it when he first said that. But he meant it. So, so I'd like to leave you with those three takeaways, and um, and uh, wonderfully, I think that's a it's uh, talking about uh, reframing our sufferings into the body of death of Christ is a perfect segue for communion. I didn't realize it was communion. So think think about these things as we go into communion. I'll pray and turn it over to Pastor Chris. Father. Give us the ability to put these words of the Apostle Paul into action, into our own life. Lord, move these words from our understanding deep into our hearts, deep down into the part of us that, that fights with you and the part of us that is prone to disobedience and take control of us. Lord, we just pray that we will keep our, our eyes on the things that are unseen because we know that everything around us is transient. 
And Lord, we know the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, change the way we think. In Jesus' name, amen.